You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Well, hi, I'm Nick, if we don't know each other. Um, I've been on staff here for a good long while. Let's just leave it at that. Um, I am excited to be here with you this morning, even if that means the school year has started again. Uh, Wouldn't it be nice if we could just hang out and not have classes and responsibilities and deadlines, right? But here we are, rude awakening. As I talked to many of you this week, I think you feel the same. Uh, Only one person told me they were ready to be back already. But yeah, they lied, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of think it's sort of the theme of the week for me, ready or not, here we go, right? Uh, So let's let's jump in. Um, I hope break was good for you. Uh, I hope you had a good chance to just retreat, to be with family, to celebrate the holidays, to reflect on the birth of Christ and how that changed everything. That was the last thing we talked about here together. Um, Let's do this. I'm not, you know, uh, usually doing like audience participation or congregation participation, um, but shout it out. Somebody tell me, what was your favorite Christmas gift you got? TV. Somebody got a TV. Legos. Backstreet Boy tickets. They're still around? (laughs) That's awesome, Kelsey. Uh, Stainless steel pot, right? Okay. Well, I got this sweater. You can thank my wife if you think I look good. So uh, it's one of my gifts. All right, well, uh, you, know, you know, that's part of celebrating uh, the holidays for us, gift giving. It's uh, a way I, I love to give gifts and watch people enjoy them. So hopefully you got to be, take part of that um, this Christmas season. So why we're in this mood of participation, show of hands if you resonate with this statement. It's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Anybody? Anybody? Am I the only one in the room? Okay, there's a few of us here, right? Uh, I think the rest of you, you're probably all like firstborn children, and you're like heavy rule followers, right? Uh, it's okay. You, you're cool. I'm married to one of you, and, and we need you around, those of us that raised our hands. And you help keep order, and you keep us out of trouble in a lot of ways. Um, that statement it is so me, and it's why I often find myself in trouble. Uh, I've shared before, rules have often seemed more like guidelines than suggestions. Well, anyways, I think uh, this, this firstborn rule follower, those that disagree with this statement, I think James, the author of the letter that we're going to start studying this semester, I think he was one of you. I think he, he would disagree with that statement. So I've, I've tried to learn a lot from James as I've tried to grow in my faith. Well, maybe that question, maybe that doesn't hit at the heart of us. Maybe it's not really the way that we live our lives. But uh, when we think about our faith, maybe some of these statements resonate with you. Maybe... All of us have maybe thought some of these things before. You don't have to raise your hand on these, but uh, if if you've ever thought, God's grace is big enough to cover that sin, it's not a big deal, I can do it. Or, Or Jesus paid for all of our sins, why does it even matter? Our actions have no consequences, no big deal. Or maybe in our in our lowest points as we struggle with sin, we may have believed or thought. I'll just never get past it. It's part of me. It's who I am. It's what I do. Now, I know I have been there. I have believed these beliefs. And the problem with these these beliefs, the the problem with thinking this way is it presumes on God's grace. 
It assumes his mercy and his forgiveness, his favor will always be with us. And it's a problem that believers have struggled with since Jesus conquered the grave. It's as old as our faith. Now, I mentioned today we start a seven-week series on the book of James. And this, this letter, it's, it's one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, as far as we can tell. James, the author of the book, he's the half-brother of Jesus. A half-brother, what do I mean? Well, Jesus, right, born of Mary by the Holy Spirit. James, born of Mary by Joseph. So they share a mother. They're, they're half-brothers. And we know from the book of Acts that James, he was a key leader in the church in Jerusalem after the apostle Peter left. He's sort of... Uh, they're holding down the fort as the church gets started. Now, he led this church for about 20 years. And we know that during that time, Christianity, it was mainly just a subset of Judaism. It was Jewish believers that believed Jesus was the Messiah. They're just a sect, a subset of, of Judaism. And as the church goes on, it starts to face persecution for their belief. In Jerusalem, there's a famine, and there's always other hardships, and they... It, forces believers to go out into the Roman Empire and to look for a better life, an easier life. And so James, being the leader, writes to these believers who have scattered across the empire. That's the context of our letter. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to scattered Jewish believers who are across the Roman Empire. And they're just like you and I. They have been tempted to presume on God's grace to assume that they always have his favor and his forgiveness. James, he's writing to appeal to them to strive for godly living, not just checking the box of faith. He's calling them to consistent living, to faith-filled living. This letter of James, uh, I know from commentaries, I know from talking to some of you, and I know from my own personal life, it can read like a, like a string of wisdom teachings or just random sayings almost. It can feel disjointed. It's like a lot of sound bites. But it's also, if we look a little deeper, it's, it's actually deeply rooted in the teachings of Jesus. There's a lot of parallels to the Sermon on the Mount, to what Jesus taught. Which kind of makes sense, right? If he's the brother of Jesus, he's probably pretty familiar with what Jesus taught. I'm sure he heard it a lot. And so what we can think of is, is this book, it's this letter, it's sort of like a mashup. It's like a Jewish wisdom book, like the book of Proverbs, and the teachings of Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount, put together. And that's, that's what James writes. So despite what seems like maybe at first glance like a string of wise sayings and just disjointed phrases, there's a consistency, a structure at a very high level. It's James' focus throughout this letter to share his wisdom about true faith Faith that is evident in the actions of a believer's life. He's making an effort to call his readers to a spiritual wholeness, a completeness, or a full integrity of their faith. He's calling us to live consistently with our faith. So this book, it's about living out our faith in such a way that we are a consistent person in both belief and action. And so each week as we look at different passages, we're going to see him address this concept from different angles. And ultimately, we're going to see him conclude that spiritual wholeness or the consistency of life that we strive for can only be achieved 
through God above, through the wisdom he offers, as he tells us in chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's the kind of life he's calling us to, a life that's marked by that that pure wisdom that comes from heaven. So with all that, with all that context, let's jump into our first message on this, in this letter. Today we're going to cover James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And next week, Russ, he'll round out chapter 1. Now this first chapter of the book, it functions a bit uniquely. James, he's going to offer a very brief introduction, like a one verse, and then run through a bunch of key topics and phrases that he's going to, introduce, he's going to expand upon on chapter, in chapters 2 through 5. So chapter 1, you could think about it sort of like the abstract for the letter or like the, the place where he's previewing the key concepts, where he's introducing what we're, going to, what we're going to learn about. And then he's going to elaborate on those. He's going to talk about trials and wisdom and wealth and faith and peace as we look at consistent living, faith, and action. So in these first verses, though, we see him bring forth the central theme of the whole letter. And it's our central message for today. He's going to show us that perseverance in trials brings spiritual wholeness. He's telling us that endurance in faith brings consistency in our lives. He's saying staying the course in the face of trials brings a much deeper, more complete faith. That's what God does in trials. So let's dive in and and unpack that. So as we take a look at our passage, we're going to see a very brief introduction, and then he's going to move right into his point. He's going to tell us to celebrate trials. So James 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joys, brother and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's the opening of the letter. Right away, we see it's very different than some of the other letters we've studied or talked about. Very different than, say, Romans, where Paul spends a long time establishing who he is and his relationship to the readers. No. James, he takes one verse. Hi, I'm James. Greetings. Boom, let's go, right? He's right into it. And I can respect that. He tells us right away in in verse 2, consider it pure joy. He's right into his point. He's not wasting any time. So in in, in the passage we just read, he tells us to take joy whenever we face trials of many kinds. Because those trials, they're a testing of our faith and produces perseverance. And that perseverance makes us mature and complete. Joy in trials, right? You hear that? Joy in trials. It's a common theme in the Bible, isn't it? In fact, that's what we talked about here last spring when we were studying the book of 1 Peter. 
joy and trials, how does that work? What does that look like in our lives? That's always a question I have, because I don't know about you, but when I'm going through hard times, a cheery disposition is not usually the way you would describe me. No, when I, when I face hard stuff, I'm usually thinking, what's the quickest way out of this? How can I learn and move on, and how can we not get back here? So joy and trials, that's challenging. What does that mean? Well, I think, I think James' word choice here is very intentional. The word he, he uses, we, we translate as joy because it, it means a deeper, more consistent internal peace. It's a state of your soul, a state of living and being, rather than a fleeting, passing happiness, which is usually influenced by your external circumstances. And the best way I could think about this um, the analogy that came to mind is, I can be happy I, because I found $5, right? Generally be happy if I found $5. But I might be joyful if I never really had to worry about money because that was just the way that the world worked. That's sort of some of the difference, I think, between the two. So an internal settledness, a deep, consistent peace in the face of trials is what James is calling us to. He's saying, don't waver in your trust of God or your belief in him as you face hard things. He's saying, instead, celebrate them because trials are purifying your faith. You don't have to be happy in the middle of, of difficult things. You don't have to be smiling when you're going through hardship. You can remain content in God and see that he is at work and trust he is purifying your faith. That's what James is calling us to. And we know God is at work in the midst of trials, right? Because, because trials bring about perseverance. That's what he told us. They bring about endurance in our lives. Just like a muscle becomes stronger when it encounters resistance repetitively, so our faith grows when we encounter trials and we persevere. Trials, they're like the extra miles you run so you get faster. Or like the extra weight you put on the barbell so that, you know, when you're doing that set. Or they were the extra reps you did at Body Pump this week. Those are trials for your faith. They're the resistance that build us. And James tells us these trials, they build our faith, and they have the result of making us mature, make us complete, spiritually whole. I like that translation, spiritual wholeness, one commentator said. He's calling us to a consistency of action and faith, a place where our beliefs and our lives match. Now, all of us, we have areas in our lives where we're inconsistent, areas where our faith and our actions don't match. And these are places where God is not done with us, where he is continuing to work on us and redeem us and shape us more like his son. Trials, they're one of the ways he does this. They're one of the tools he uses with the ultimate goal of making us spiritually whole, not lacking in anything. So why do we consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds? Because we know that God is working to mature us and build our faith. So when we find ourselves in the midst of difficult times, we should celebrate those trials. Because God is at work, whether we see it or not. Let's continue on and see what else James has to say. Next, he's going to tell us 
that if we are lacking in wisdom as we pursue this maturity, we should wholeheartedly ask God for wisdom, and he'll give it to us. So let's read. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave on the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So if we find ourselves unsure how to handle the trials we're facing, we should ask God for wisdom. And God, who is kind and good, freely gives wisdom to those who, generous, who genuinely seek it. But, but wait a minute, what about this, this doubting and these waves on the sea and the wind and this double-mindedness, right? He kind of gets us in the weeds there. There's a lot going on. Uh, James is pointing out here, he's saying that God freely gives to those who sincerely ask. He's saying God isn't a genie that just responds to magical incantations or the right phraseology or just because you asked, you're going to get. No, see, the asking is important, but spiritual integrity of the asker is key. Spiritual integrity, what do I mean by that? I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to have the right answers or be super holy or not have sinned today or something. It's, It's not anything like that. It's not that you don't have to have any doubt in your heart or your life. It means that you're wholeheartedly seeking God, seeking to follow him and trust him and live his way rather than the worldly way. Now, doubt, it's a factor here. James calls that. What does he mean? He's he's talking about a doubting person praying to God, praying to God and asking for help, but doubts that God can do anything about it. It's the person who kind of just lobs up a prayer, help me on this exam, but I didn't even study or or do anything, right? Um, He calls them, they're they're sort of like this boat without an anchor. They're at the mercy of the wind and waves. They're tossed around, and and life just carries them about. You know, one moment it's God, one minute it's the world, which to me sounds like a really terrifying way to live, actually. Um, That picture seems kind of terrifying when I think about it. Um, This kind of person, I think, that James is talking about, that doubts. It's the kind of person that tosses up a prayer for wisdom today, but then runs to worldly advice the next day. It's the kind of person that earnestly prays for a spouse today and then is on Tinder tomorrow. Right? They're, they're fleeting, they're passing, they're switching back and forth between what they're trusting in and what they're seeking advice from or how they're bringing about their circumstances. So it's not that our prayers won't be answered if we, if we have doubts. All of us will have doubts. It's the state of our, of our humanity. And this side of eternity, we will all wrestle with some level of doubt. Now, what, what he's saying here, what he means, is that God responds to our prayers and requests when our lives reflect the basic consistency of our heart's purpose and intent and our faith. And we have spiritual integrity. So God freely gives wisdom. But he's not going to give an answer to my request for the winning lotto ticket numbers just because I have financial hardship. No, because that's inconsistent with the way he operates and with my motives. So James, he's, he's pointing out that spiritual perfection, 
which is the goal of trials we face, will only be achieved when the wisdom of God is present in our lives. We need God's perspective, and we need his truth to grow in maturity and live consistent lives. And this wisdom of God, it can be had simply by sincerely asking. Because God gives wisdom to those who ask in faith. So ask. Let's keep moving through our passage. And James, he's going to go on and he's going to show us that our significant is in, significance is in Christ, not in our position of wealth, which can be so tempting for us, right? James, uh, picking up in verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Wealth will fade away. Those in humble circumstances should take pride in their high positions. This is Sermon on the Mount kind of stuff, isn't it? It's reminiscent of, of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the upside-down kingdom that God has always been about and that Jesus taught about so often. The things the world holds dear is often foolishness in God's eyes. Our current circumstances have little to do with how much God loves us or our standing before him. And this has always been the way of the Lord. We read the same kind of idea in, in Jeremiah chapter 9 as the prophet calls out Judah and Jerusalem in their sin and trust in their own wisdom and strength. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boast, of, boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let us not boast in our wisdom, our strength, or wealth. Let us boast in the Lord. That was Jeremiah's call then. James, he exhorts his readers to look past their wealth and find their significance in Christ. And both of these messages are the same to us today. Your value does not come from the amount of zeros on the job offer you get when you graduate. Your value does not come from the size of your savings account or the amount of money you stock up for retirement in life. You have value because you are a child of God. You have significance because you can boast in the Lord and that you know him. And, and as we see in our passage, right, James, he actually elevates the believer who is poor, and he almost has pity on the believer who is rich. And I, I think this is because poverty can be a great trial for us, can it? Those of us that have experienced the throes of poverty understand what it's like to question whether or not we will have money to eat or to pay rent, whether we can keep the heat on or have food. In those trials, we can persevere and mature in our faith. The rich, 
they miss out on that daily question of will God meet my needs and sustain me? Now, the poor, they have a deeper faith often because they see their need in God's provision. Don't fight them there. So to believers who are poor and believers who are rich, James, he warns both not to be tricked into thinking their, their wealth has anything to do with their significance before God. He wants us to look toward our spiritual identity as a measure of our ultimate significance. He's calling us to find our significance in Christ, not our wealth or our circumstances. Well, let's look at the final section of our passage this morning. And here, as we look at this, we're going to see uh, God is the author of good gifts in our lives and not the tempter trying to crush our faith or lead us astray. Let's read. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when, he, when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. He does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So James, he reminds us that persevering through trials is worth it because we'll receive the heavenly reward God, God promises to all believers. And as if he's anticipating our objections, he tells us right away, uh, temptations, they're not from God. The, the temptation to call it quits, to not persevere, to just throw in the towel and, and find something easier, it's, that's not God. That's your flesh and that's your desires for self-preservation or to find an easier way. Because God only gives good gifts. He reminds us that the most prominent good gift God has given us is our new birth in Christ, the new life he has given us. Now, uh, Maybe it's a tangent. You know, some people, they have a hard time with this idea of, of treasures in heaven or heavenly treasures. And, and is this crown language, is that what Peter's after? Is that what he's referring to? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think so. And actually, some of the commentaries don't, don't think so either. I think it's likely, James here, he's just talking about a metaphor for salvation, uh, the crown of life that God has promised. And, uh, you know, we, we, can, we can maybe unpack that a little bit if we look at Jesus' teaching on treasures in heaven. Um, in, in Luke 12, I think it helps us understand a little bit. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Jesus is equating selling your possessions and giving to those in need with treasures in heaven, heavenly treasures uh, of reward in heaven. And if we consider that at the heart of James' message is, is living consistently, living a consistent spiritual life, a life where faith and action match, it kind of starts to make sense. 
There isn't a place for a person to have faith and be consumed by their greed. No, Jesus says, give to the needy. For that's where your treasure is. When your faith is in action, that shows where your treasure is at. Your treasure is in your faith. Now, a person that is consumed by their greed, their treasure is their money, not heavenly things, not their faith. So James, he's saying to live with spiritual integrity. In doing so, you reveal where your treasure is. You'll be saved. And when temptation comes, which we know it does, and he, he warns us it will, we, should be, we shouldn't be tempted to believe that God is the author of those temptations. He's not. He's not the source of the temptations you feel. That is your own selfish ambition or your own desires. That's from the evil one and from your flesh. Yeah, the evil one, he uses our circumstances and our desires to tempt us and, and calls us away from God. When we give in to temptations, it leads to sin and death. So while God may use trials in our lives to strengthen our faith, to bring us to maturity, he's never seeking to destroy our faith or to lead us astray. He's never tempting us to walk away. That's not from God. In fact, he very specifically calls us to flee from temptations elsewhere in Scripture. Every trial we face will bring temptation. It's just sort of a rule of the world, rule of the universe. Right? Financial difficulty, it tempts us to question if God will provide for our needs. If you've lost a loved one, maybe you've been tempted to question if God loves us or has any power to do anything here. Why couldn't he save me? If you're really keyed into uh, social justice, I'm sure you've questioned God's sovereignty when you see the poor believer oppressed and the wicked rich rise to power. How could God be just? How could he be sovereign if that's the case? We are tempted so often when we face hard, hard times. And though we are tempted, God is still good and he is still at work. And James continues on to remind us that. He tells us that God gives good and perfect gifts. He is the one that gives us new birth in Christ. That's our reminder. That's where we can hang our hat. In the face of trials and temptations, James tells us to see God as the generous gift giver, the author of our salvation. And so in the opening of his letter to believers who have been living lives that seem to be presuming on God's grace, people who are taking their salvation for granted, who are living inconsistent, saying they believe Jesus and living, living like they don't. James tells us to persevere in trials because they bring spiritual wholeness. He tells us to celebrate trials because they are God's tool to bring about spiritual completeness in us. He encourages us to ask sincerely for God to provide wisdom from above to navigate these trials. He tells us to find our significance in Christ rather than being tricked into believing our current circumstances have anything to do about God's love or interaction in our lives. And he wraps up by reminding us that God is a generous gift giver. Now, I imagine like you, uh, 
if you're like me and, and you've experienced a lot of trials in your lives. I've encountered a lot. One I've shared about in, in several occasions here is, is the trial that Amy and I endured as we, as we sought to have a kid, tried to have, have a child. For three years, we tried to get pregnant, and we saw doctors, and we took tests, and we invited all kinds of medical invasion into our lives, trying to make sense of what health class told me was a simple equation, and yet one plus one was not equaling three's love. For three years, our sadness grew each month as we saw a negative pregnancy result. We spent so much time crying and praying on our couch and asking God for his provision and for answers to our child. Through tears, we talked about the foundation of our faith not being our present circumstances. We wrestled with the temptation to question if God was truly good. We were tempted to be jealous and bitter of people who could so easily have kids, sometimes without even wanting it. And through this long trial, we struggled to be happy. We, we struggled to be joyful. We sought to remain joyful. We, we tried to remain joyful. We sought comfort in God's word, in counsel of dear friends who had gone through similar things. We looked to the stories of the Old Testament of women who couldn't have children and how deeply it saddened them. We cried out to God like Abraham and Sarah, like Isaac and Rebecca. We found comfort knowing that others had been here. We persevered through that child, and after we had concluded it just wasn't to be, God is saying no. And after our doctors had told us they could do no more, we sort of moved on. We began to wrestle with other questions. Should we adopt? And then God, in his kindness, gave us our son Nathan, a good gift, a very sweet gift. And over Nathan's crib, we have James 1.17 painted on the wall. Sarah Hogue uh, did a beautiful job painting a starry night sky and the verse on the wall. And so each night as I put my son to sleep, and each morning as I get him up, I have a reminder that God is a generous gift giver in the midst of trials. Now, I never again want to go through the hardships we did for those three years. So much so, I don't, I don't even know if we can have another kid, right? Because um, I want to open to that heartache. And I don't wish these, those hardships on anybody. I have so much compassion for, for anyone whose story continues on with God saying no to biological children. That is a hard road. But here's the thing. The ways our faith was deepened in those years, I would never trade for anything. The ways we were brought to more mature faith and spiritual wholeness, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give that up. You know, we were tempted to abandon, uh, abandon God, my faith, to numb out the pain and ignore it, to check out. We chose to press in to lament, to look for comfort in the stories of our faith and to invite community around us 
with the glory. How we persevered in trials. And trials, they produce spiritual maturity in us. I'm thankful for that. Maybe that doesn't resonate with you. A lot of you are not married and you're not even thinking about kids at this point in your life. But maybe this does. Maybe this strikes real close to home. Many of you were with us last semester as we said goodbye to a handful of key leaders and families here last semester. For many of you, that was heartache. It was hard to say goodbye. For many of us that have been in campus ministry for a long time, this is a consistent trial for us to have to say goodbye. It's a consistent place of heartache. I've been on this campus for 18 years. I'm I'm old. Um, I've seen a lot of generations of students come and go. Each year in May, I say goodbye to dear friends. That's what God has called me to. That's the trial he's called me to. I've watched guys I had the privilege of sharing Jesus walk away from their faith and abandon our relationship. I've been misunderstood. I've been judged. I've been giving really bad and hurtful advice by other leaders as they've spoken to my life. Ministry can be a trial. Being a part of a church community can be a trial. Being a church leader is a trial. Much of the hardships we've endured recently as we've had to say goodbye, they've been long trials brewing for a while for many of us that have been in church leadership here. We've worked through conflict. We've worked through hurt. We've sought clarity on where we disagreed theologically and about the mission of the church. And with heartache, we've said goodbye to dear friends as they've made decisions to pursue God in ministry apart from us in a place where they can express their theology that differs from ours, in a place where they can express their mission they've been called to that differs from ours. There's heartache in those trials. Many of us have felt that. But the hard work we have endured Alani Life as a community, this hard trial, it bears the fruit of a clarity of mission, a chance to reinvigorate the passion to reach this campus, I see it already as I've been with many of you in recent weeks. We as Alina Life are more on mission to reach this temple with the gospel of Jesus Christ than we have been in a good long while. We are excited to share about Jesus. We in Alina Life are excited to proclaim the truth of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel here every Sunday morning because we believe that the gospel and the truth of the scriptures transforms lives. We're committed to learning and grow and growing from the trials that we've endured. We believe that the trials we've had to face as a church community, that they're growing us, that they're, they're shaping our faith, that they're growing us into deeper, more committed believers and followers of Jesus Christ that they're calling us to live more consistently in our belief and our actions. And we believe that because James tells us that perseverance and trials bring spiritual wholeness, spiritual completeness. Would you pray with me?